Good morning. Good to have you with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 1. This is our Doubts in Answers teaching series. We're answering the question, attempting to answer the question, why does God allow suffering? Hey, quick uh, additional note to that class I'll be teaching on uh, Tuesday nights starting on the 30th. If you're not connected to a small group, I'd love to have you come out. It's going to be open and lively dialogue over that book. You can download that book for free. Uh, Follow the instructions there in the bulletin. And also, you'll want to download the study notes with answers. And that's also can be downloaded for free. But it'll just be a discussion over this book. This book had a really big impact on my life a number of years ago. It's where we get the statement. uh, It's actually from John Piper, and it's from this book and other books that he's written. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So we're going to walk through how, how do you do that? How do you find your deepest satisfaction in God in any and every circumstance? Also, we're talking about suffering this morning. A number of resources that we have other than what I'm going to be sharing with you here this morning. You can go back to our website. And I talked about suffering back during our Christmas series, More Than a Baby in a Manger. Mighty God was the particular teaching on suffering. If you want to go back a few more years, we did a series through the book of Job, uh, 2008, August the 17th. We also have Grief Share that's uh, here that meets regularly. Kathy Schmidt does a great job at leading that and uh, encourage you to get plugged into a small group. They're, obviously, our small groups are a great support when you're going through a tough time. So suffering is what we're talking about this morning. Barna, George Barna, public opinion pollster a number of years ago, did some research and asked the question, if you could talk to God, come face-to-face with God, what would be one question that you would want to ask him if you knew that he would answer you? And the number one question uh, was, why, why is there suffering? Why do you allow suffering? And here's kind of a little interesting quirk to that question. Uh, If you're single, listen up, uh, because uh, married people were more prone to ask that question than singles. (laughs) Not really sure why. I know exactly why. So uh, so an interesting, interesting question, but it's a great question. It's an important question. It's a question that is as old as the first tier and as recent as the latest newscast. Why does God allow suffering? And I know for this morning, uh, for many of you, this is not just a, a theological or an academic question, but a very personal, very personal question because of what you have gone through or are still going through. And so... Um, We've been, as we've been walking through this teaching series, I've been encouraging you to, uh, to understand that the gospel is both intellectually sound, so it's head sound, and it's heart satisfying. And it's important to maintain that balance. It's rational, and so I'll give you a rational side to Christianity, but then there's also that relational side. You don't want to miss either one of those. And I also have been talking to you about the fact that that you need to not only know what you believe, but why you believe what you believe. If you neglect the why, you will drift from the what. It's one of the reasons why we've got our youth in here uh, this weekend and every weekend throughout this teaching series. We've got our high school students that are uh, in this service because 80% of our students that have been raised in a Christian home defect from the faith when they get into the colleges and universities. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that they don't have a good solid foundation for their faith. Not only do they not know what they believe, but they don't know why they believe what they believe. 
And so it's easy to drift. And this is typically when people drift. And, I, and I've watched this my whole life and being involved in the church is that we typically defect from the faith for two particular reasons. We become disillusioned by the pressures or the pain of life. Or we become deceived by the pleasures of life. Usually exacerbated by the skeptics all around us in our lives. There's a lot of skeptics. Would you agree with that? I mean, it's the very air we breathe, this God-ignoring society that we live in. And so if you want a faith that can uh, sustain the, the trials and the temptations of life, get through those things, you need to know what you believe, why you believe, what you believe. Peter, in our text here, the letter of Peter, First Peter is a letter that's addressing people who have suffered a great deal and are about to suffer more. And so he gives us the resources that we need in this text, but even throughout his writings on how to endure suffering, how to get through suffering, the difficulties of suffering. And, uh, and uh, real quick, let me just uh, bring this up to your attention too. I talked about dogmatic assertions and defensible arguments last week. There's a difference between the two. Just to clarify that, is that uh, you guys know what a dogmatic assertion is? And a lot of times people get thrown off by dogmatic assertions. It's an opinion that's kind of pushed on you as, a, as if it's fact. But if you roll up your sleeves and dive in, you realize there's no basis. Even though if the person might have a doctorate degree, they, a lot of, there's a lot of opinions you know, in our society today. And we, we tend to get blown to and fro because of these opinions. And what you need to do is ask, is this a defensible argument? What is the foundation for that? What is the basis for that? And always keep in mind that the gospel is both... It is both um, intellectually sound, head sound, heart satisfying. So we're going to head into this study this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Let's go before the throne of grace once again. And then we're going to dive right into this study. Father God, the evil we saw in the, in the Boston bombings this last week is once again both the consequence of man's rebellion and a glimpse of what of what is to come for those who want a world absent of you. The very fact, the very fact of our outrage at evil is a clue that we're in touch with a standard of goodness that comes from being created in your image. We thank you, God, that you are a father of compassion and a God of all comfort who comforts us in our trouble. We pray for your presence, your power, your peace for those that are suffering from the Boston bombings and the explosion in West Texas and also those that are here this morning in our church family. May suffering press our hearts closer to you as it reminds us of of the brevity and the frailty of life and the certainty of our mortality. Jesus Christ, we know that you didn't suffer on the cross so that we wouldn't suffer, but that in our suffering we would suffer well. Teach us through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit how to suffer well for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's take a look at this text. This, this text alone is a wonderful resource if you're going through a hard time, if you're going through difficulty, if you're going through suffering. And, and I'm going to try to read through it without too much commentary. It's just, it's, it's brilliant. It's amazing. It's, it's nurturing to our soul and our spirit. 
So I begin reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation mark. I mean, it's just according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. What is he talking about? In this you re- He just went through kind of a list of things. If you were just to walk through the implications of, of each of these uh, phrases and ideas and words, they're rich with meaning and give such strength and stamina and stability to our spiritual lives. And so he's saying, hey, we rejoice in this. Notice this. Though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials. That's what I love about the Christian faith. It's not a denial of reality. He's talking about grief. And in the midst of grief, we embrace God who's much bigger than our grief. And we have a joy even in the midst of our sadness and our grief. Check out verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. All the money in the world can't compare to having a relationship with God and knowing God and, and all the many benefits that it, that it brings in knowing him and walking with him. And he says, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh, this is a great verse. You hear me quote this a lot. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him. Now, he's talking to second-generation Christians because Peter saw Jesus face-to-face. God in flesh. Amazing. And now he's, now he's speaking to these second-generation Christians, and he's saying, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You can't even put words on it. In fact, the the, the word glory means uh, weight, significance, and importance. In fact, the glory of walking with Jesus, knowing that Jesus in your life far exceeds the weight, the significance of, of suffering or any difficulties that we will ever face. That's what he's saying. Because you're living in the reality of his presence. His presence is so palpable to you, almost as if he's really there with you. And he is in spirit. And you're having that sense on your heart, and it's got a hold of your heart. And then he goes on, he says, Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls kind of elaborates a little bit more, verses 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So he's saying, hey, in the Old Testament, prophets predicted this, and now we're living in the reality of it. They predicted the coming Messiah who would come and and give his life. And then he says, uh, verse, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the substance the subsequent glories, almost couldn't say that, sufferings and then the glories that, it, that, that came out of the sufferings. And then verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, talking about the prophets, they were pointing ahead, they were not suffering, uh, 
They were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which, into which angels long. The word long means lust. They just, they are captivated by the gospel of Jesus. I can't believe that God would go to the earth to rescue those folks after how rotten they are. I mean, they're just blown away. This is the greatest story ever told, and they're captivated by it. They lust, they long to look at it, to gaze, to be fixated on it. They're overwhelmed by it. Angels are pretty smart beings, and so they're overwhelmed by the greatest story ever told. Every movie, every book that you've ever read that you thought was really good, it's just a dim glimpse of this story, the story of God's redemption of mankind through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what, the, that's what he's talking about here. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. It's amazing. It is totally amazing. So here we go. So this is what we're going to do. Two ways not to face suffering. Three ways to face suffering. Here's the two ways not to face suffering. First of all, uh, before I give you the fill in the blanks here, you'll notice in verses 6 and 7, I pointed this out, that he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved. Uh, as, as we face suffering, it's important. So he mentions the word grief in verse 6, and then the context is community, and the outlook is living hope, this living hope that we have. And, and what he's saying here, just right from the get-go, and this is kind of a, this is assumed, but I need to tell you these things that are assumed in this text, and that it is important to release your grief to God. You, you have to be in touch with the reality of the devastation of your circumstances. Christianity is not about a denial of reality. So he's, he's talking about in the midst of grief, you grieve. So you release your grief to God. There, has to be, there have to be those times in your life that when you take some hits, you let God know. You share your heart. You connect with him. And you even share that with others. So not only do you release your grief to God, but you need to receive from friends to keep yourself from becoming bitter in suffering. And, and I think what this is also telling us is that suffering doesn't have to weaken your faith, but it can strengthen your faith. That's why he goes on and talks about so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, so it can actually strengthen your faith. But these are attempts, I'm going to give you two attempts to keep God at bay and play God, and this will actually weaken your faith in the midst of it. You try to play this game at all, it'll, it'll cause problems. Two ways not to face suffering. Number one, moralizing. Number two, minim, minimizing. Minimizing. So moralizing and minimizing. Let's start with the first one, moralizing. Moralizing basically goes like this. It's this mindset that says, hey, live a good life and you'll get a good life. And it's like, uh, it's like Job's miserable comforters. Most of the book is about his miserable comforters coming alongside of them to comfort him, but they didn't. And what were they constantly pointing to him? Well, you must have sin in your life, or you must lack faith. What's wrong with you? And it, what, it's a reductionistic approach to, to suffering. Because the Bible makes it very clear, and I put this as the answer, bad things can and will happen to good people. I mean, it's throughout Scripture. And you can read these verses on your own. Job is a perfect example of that, the book of Job. He was, it says in actually Job 1.8 that Job was blameless, upright, feared God, shunned evil. God, God was saying that about him. And all hell broke loose in his life. And so we got plenty of verses 
really to talk about that. And even more so, if you're a believer, you're going to face suffering. Let me walk you through the logic here. Before Christ, before you made a commitment to Christ, you had one enemy. Who was your enemy? Actually, before Christ, God. God was your enemy. You guys were, you guys were trying. I mean, and self is your enemy too. But really, when you're, God is your enemy. Because you're at enmity with God. While we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. So we were enemies of God. So you only had one enemy. And this enemy of yours died for you. When you committed your life to Jesus Christ, you go from having one enemy to now you've got three enemies. What are your three enemies? Turn to the person next to you and see if they know what the three enemies are of the believer. Real quick. Okay, what did you guys come up with? Sin, self, Satan. Did you guys get those? Society, our culture is antagonistic towards uh, the teachings of Christ. We've got our own sinful nature. And then we've also got, our, we've got an adversary, Satan. And so it only makes sense. Certainly you can read those scriptures on your own. By the way, I would encourage you to go through the growing notes. It'll help to reinforce a lot of what we're learning. Some of our small groups go through our growing notes. I would encourage you as parents to take your students through these growing notes to reinforce this. Use them for your own personal devotions, but also they're in the notes, in the bulletin. And then also sit down. Couples, you can do that with each other. You know, go through the growing notes. And, uh, and work through these to, to really emphasize that. So moralizing. Moralizing is, oh, you must be something wrong with your life. Well, that's not always true. You can do all the right things and still have bad things happen to you. Okay? Now, certainly we understand sowing and reaping. There's certain things that we can do and we can reap the consequences of that. But that's not always the case. It's not always, you know, because we've done something wrong or bad. That's important to keep in mind. You can hurt and wound a lot of people with using that. Here's the next one is minimizing. And so oftentimes people will use this as, well, this is evidence. The suffering, this is evidence there, there is no God. It's proof there is no God or he's incompetent. The argument goes something like this. Well, if God is good and he's all-powerful and yet we have the suffering, then he's either not good and all-powerful or he's all-powerful and not good. Because look at this suffering. And so they'll, they'll say, well, this is proof there is no God or he's incompetent. So make the best of it. Here's the answer. God is not the cause of suffering, but he is in complete control of it. And just because you can't see a reason why God would allow suffering doesn't mean there can't be one. In fact, I believe there are probably thousands of reasons, many of which we won't really fully see until we are face-to-face with him. It makes that pretty clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. When we come face to face with God. A number of verses that help you to understand that, they're on your notes. You can study that on your own. Genesis chapter 3 pretty much tells us when the wheels came off this cart that we're riding. And um, it's pretty messed up when we see that they rejected God. They were deceived. And, uh, and so they rejected God. And from that point on, this, from this spiritual alienation comes psychological alienation and then uh, relational or social alienation, and then we got the physical alienation. You can see the process right there in Genesis chapter 3. Pretty interesting. And yet, here's what's amazing, is that God is not the cause, and yet he's in complete control, and he will use suffering in our lives, and as we will see as we walk through this, uh, for his glory in our good. Let me give you a couple quotes. One's from uh, Timothy Keller, and the other one's from C.S. Lewis. But I would encourage you, this is a great book, uh, this was the launch pad. This book is the kind of the launch pad for this whole series, and I've drawn from the resources. It's Timothy Keller's book, The Reason for God, uh, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. Listen to what uh, Timothy Keller says here. 
See if you can track with his thinking. If you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways. So if, so if he's big enough for you to be mad at, he's also smart enough to have reasons that go beyond your ability to fully comprehend. And just because you can't come up with a reason doesn't mean that there aren't reasons, okay? You guys tracking with me? In fact, I'll guarantee you, because of his sovereignty, and I've seen this, he's got thousands of reasons why he allows the things to go down in our lives that we can't quite figure out. That's how masterful he is. That's how wonderful he is. That's how great he is. Listen to me. You can trust his loving, wise control of your life. You can bank on that. And I'm going to show you why you can bank on that in a little bit. We're going to, we'll walk through that. You can take that to the bank. You can live your life on that. You can build your life on that. And uh, he backed that up. Here's another quote. This is from C.S. Lewis. And uh, C.S. Lewis well, classified himself as the reluctant a convert. Listen to what he did as he grappled with this whole deal of suffering. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. And the idea here is that he's saying, and I've heard uh, Tim Keller say, that to call something crooked... If you say something is crooked, you can't say something is crooked unless you have a straight edge somewhere. So when we are outraged over uh, things that seem to be so unjust, well, where does that come from? And most of your atheist philosophers would say you have no basis for just or unjust. Because if there is no God, then when we all die, when the sun burns out and we're all gone, what difference does it make? Does it really matter? No, it doesn't really matter. That's what they would say. They say the rationale is that it matters not. Now, it matters not how you live your life. Whether you die today or die next week, you're going to die, and you'll be in oblivion forever. So big deal. You existed for a moment in time. If there's such a thing as time, we made that up. So the rationale, the fact that we would be in turmoil over injustices, and that's what C.S. Lewis came to terms with. Is that, wait a minute, why, why am I so, why does that bother me so bad? And he had to realize that within his own heart there was that sense of right and wrong. And he talks about that in his book, uh, Mere Christianity. That intuitively, why, where did we get that from? We're creating the image of God. That's why it bothers us. That's why we struggle with that. Can't you see? There is a God. It's within yourself as you grapple with the issues of life. Now, now here's, the, here's what our adversary tries to do before we move on to the three ways to, to face suffering. Our adversary will try to, Satan, if Satan can't get you to believe the lie that God doesn't really exist, he'll work to get you to believe the lie that God doesn't really have your best interest at heart. Does that, does that make sense? And that's, that's really kind of where he worked on Adam and Eve, and that's why they, uh, they defected, because they begin to believe, they begin to question God's commandments and then God's character. 
And if you begin to question God's character and his commandments, I mean, you're going to get tossed to and fro by the suffering in life. So, oh, I believe in God, and yet why are you in such turmoil if you believe that he's got your best interest at heart? Well, you really don't believe that he's got your best interest at heart. That's why we worry. Okay, so how do we get beyond that? How do we get beyond that? Here it is. Three ways to face suffering. Now, let me, and I've, I've walked you through this many times before. When you go through difficulties, how, uh, how you see your difficulties, what you believe is true about your difficulties determines how you will feel and how you will respond to those difficulties. Now, track with me here because I hear a lot of people say, I am the way I am because of what has happened to me. And I would say, no, no, time out. You are the way you are. You, you feel and you behave in a certain way, not because of your difficulties, but because of what you're telling yourself about your difficulties. You guys tracking with me? That's why, listen to me, that's why a biblical worldview is not just a luxury, it's a necessity, not just for your, sur- your survival, but your thriving in the midst of, of suffering. It comes down to your perspective, and it comes down to how do you choose to evaluate. So, so the way we evaluate the events of life determine how we are going to, th- how we're going to feel, and respond to those events. It's not the events themselves. I'm not denying the fact that we go through difficult times. We all go through difficult times. But it's what are you saying to yourself? What is your what is your worldview in regard to those difficulties? And I'm telling you, that's the reason why we get together regularly to study God's Word. That's why we have small groups. It's to reinforce a biblical worldview to remind us that God is for us and not against us. I'll guarantee you the reason why we all cave in, the reason why we have problems, why we have anxiety, we have envious thoughts and, and anger and frustration and all these things is because we're not living in the reality of what Christ has provided for us. And so that's why we need people to come alongside of us to help us, especially in suffering and in difficult times. Okay, and that's what this is. That, that's the answer here for us. Three ways to respond uh, that we can respond to suffering. And this is a biblical worldview. Christianity, now, now keep in mind, Christianity does not provide the reason for each experience of suffering. It does, it does provide deep resources for actually facing suffering with hope and courage rather than bitterness and despair. That's what I'm going to give you right here. And this is what you're going to find out. It's not a technique. Not six easy steps. It's a person. It's Jesus. He's here this morning. He loves you. He gave his life for you. And so what we need to do is three things. If we're going to walk through this, if we're going to have this biblical worldview, I've got to look to the past at what he has done, the cross. And then I've got to look to the future to what he will do, and that's our crown. And then I'm going to look to the present to what he is doing. Three things. That's what we're going to look at here. So let's go back to the first one. I just I wanted to say all three, and then we'll come back and work through it. Number one, look to the past at what he has done, the cross. Did you notice in verse 3 of our text, if you still have your Bibles open, he says this. He says, we have a living hope through the resurrection, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he expounds on it in verses 10 through 11. He says, concerning the salvation of the prophets who prophesied, and then verse 11, inquiring what person or time, and he talks about... They predicted his sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. Subsequent glories. We talked about it last week. This is what separates Christianity from all the major cults and religions of our world today. If you didn't get this from last week, let me say it again. 
God showed up. Okay? God showed up on this planet Earth. God so loved us and hates suffering, the mess we got ourselves in. By the way, suffering is a result of our sin. And because we continue to sin, it continues to bring suffering. But I believe that God controls suffering and sin and evil. Otherwise, evil would be out of control. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to be blown away at how much he prevented and and stopped from us experiencing. I I think it would would wipe us out. I think we would already wiped ourselves out a long time ago on this planet Earth. But because he restrains it and he loves us. But he, he came down. God so loved us and hates suffering that he was willing to come down and get involved in it at the cost of his life. That's an amazing truth. And so we trust God in suffering. Listen to me. We trust God in suffering. Not because we see his hand in our circumstances that we can make heads or tails out of all that's going on in our life. Because we can't. Quite frankly, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense to us. The Bible says that that's going to be part of life. We We don't trust him because we can make heads or tails out of it and come up with really slick answers Because we see his hand in our circumstances, we trust him because we've seen his heart for us on the cross. You got to look back to the cross. The cross gives us the resources we need as we face circumstances that, well, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, but this does. He, He gave his life for us. He loved us. I love what John Stott says. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? Our God came down and got involved in our lives and took on our payment for sin upon himself, took all of the wrath of God upon himself that was against us so that we could have his righteousness And begin to redeem us and restore us. So the cross is evidence that in God's hands... And remember, he talked about cross and then he talks about this... Remember, he says the subsequent glory. So he predicted the suffering. So you got the cross and then the subsequent glories, verse 11. Then we said that we have a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it's talking about the resurrection. So the cross is evidence that in God's hands, moments of apparent defeat will become wonderful moments of grace and victory. See, that's what the cross tells us. Now, can you imagine how the disciples felt? They spent three and a half years, three years with Jesus. He's our hope. Praise God. God sent the Messiah. Yes, he's going to transform the world. And he dies on the cross. That made no sense to them. Can you imagine as you're looking up at your, your Messiah and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They had to have been terribly disillusioned. Oh, talk about being distraught. Talk about being depressed. And little did they know, they were moments away from the most miraculous, most miraculous act of history that would, that would bring freedom to all mankind, the resurrection. So what does that tell us? That tells us that God can take our, our crucifixions, our, our troubling times, and turn them into resurrections. I don't know how he does it, but I've seen him time and time again. I don't fully understand it, but he does. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's simply amazing. And that's the hope we have as we look back at the cross and we see that, see what he's up to. Uh, Romans 8, 28 through 32 talks about that. For we know that in all things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
And in fact, we, you can go back to the Old Testament and you see God's providential hand. One of my favorite stories is the book of Joseph, or the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. It's, it's phenomenal. How many are familiar with the story of Joseph? I mean, this guy is abused by his brothers. They strip him of his clothes, throw him in a pit, and through God's providential hand, he goes from the pit to the palace, second in command of all of Egypt. And then there's this time when his brothers come to him and are standing before him, and now he's this ruler. And this is what he says. It's called the 50-20. I call it the 50-20 perspective because this is what God does. He can so redeem and recycle our pain and our suffering in such a way that he, we, we are beginning to see more clearly, and I think most of that clarity is going to even come when we're with him in heaven for all eternity. But he's able to say, you intended to harm me. So he's, he's in touch with reality. You intended to harm me. He's talking to his brothers. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And God used Joseph to save many people's lives as a result of all the hardship that he went through. I'm telling you, the hardship you're going through, God is going to use that in your life to touch a lot of people's lives and to save many lives. I mean, that's, that's wonderful, isn't it? Praise God. Praise God for his grace. So we look back to, to the cross. So how do I know that God loves me? The cross. How do I know that he understands my pain? The cross. Well, how do I know that he's not punishing me uh, somehow through the suffering that I'm going through? The cross. All the punishment for us was placed upon him. This isn't punishment. God's not asking for double payment for our sins. It's already been paid for in full. Jesus said it is finished. So God's not, God's not punishing you. This is not punitive when you go through suffering. Does that make sense? So, so that's, that's what we've got to always keep in mind. How do I know that he can... Take the bad and work it for my good. The cross and the resurrection. He can do that. Okay, so you look back. Here's the next one. So you look to the future, to what he will do. This is the crown, and this is really what he's talking about. And I, I think that there's a couple things here. Is that I think that he's looking at the immediate future in this life. I think there's a, a future. You know, most of us are going to live, a, you know, maybe we'll see. See what God has in store for us another couple days. And maybe a couple more years. And so the immediate future, I believe he's talking about the immediate future, but he's also talking about the, the, the future in the next life, in our life with him. And uh, I think he's talking about both of those futures. I think it's the future in this life, but in the life to come also. You guys have heard this story before uh, about you, have two, you, you put two people in this uh, dark, kind of dingy room, no sunlight, no windows, and uh, you have them working for you, uh, fastening this uh, widget on this gadget, and they have to do this for 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and you tell one, you got two, so you tell one, at the end of the month, I'll pay you $1,000, at the end of the year, you'll have $12,000. And then you tell the other one that at the end of the month, I will give you $1 million, and at the end of the year, you'll have $12 million. Which one would have more hope, a living hope? In their life, the one that's going to get the million dollars, wouldn't you agree? Probably the one that's only getting $1,000 a month would probably say, I can't handle this. This is too much for me. So in that story, it kind of tells us the importance of this sense of expectation that we need to have as it relates to, and that's what he's talking about when he says this living hope through the resurrection. It's almost like a kid, you know, on Christmas Eve night, can't hardly wait to wake up the next morning to see what dad and mom have brought them or whatever. That's, the, that's almost the attitude. Okay, God, this is really messed up right now, but I can't wait to see what you're going to do with it. 
I can't wait to see the hope and, and how you're going to restore this and how you're going to work this in, in our lives. So that's kind of that, that's a little bit of that, uh, that attitude that we need to have. Um, verse, look at verse 4. He says, to an inheritance... And he goes through the specifics of that inheritance, most treasured possession. Verse 5, by God's power are being guarded. So it's not really up to us. It's that we persevere, although perseverance is part of it. But no, he's hanging on to you. He's hanging on to you. Some of you that have gone through unbelievable circumstances, I know you guys right here on the front, are going through terrible circumstances. And I'm telling you, God's hanging on to you. God's hanging on to you. I can see that. I've seen it. I've seen what God's doing in your lives. They, they just lost their daughter here just within the last, within the last month. It's, and so I know God is hanging on to you. I can see that. And that's what that, that promise is. I know I was thinking about this, the difficulties. I was thinking of, of Linda. And I could go through here. And there's so many different people that have gone through and what she went through. And I, I see God's, God is hanging on to your life. And I've seen him beginning, you know, continuing to, to restore, redeem, and use that in your life in a powerful way. I see the glory of Jesus in you. In the midst of she lost her son. Uh, how long has that been now, Linda? Two years ago. Two years ago. Pretty amazing. So we've seen tragedy. Many of us that, that know who Rick Warren is, he lost his son. I was just, I was blown away at... Uh, how despicable the moralists were, both Christian and non-Christians, sending him hate mail. Oh my goodness, how crazy is that? And I, there was a quote that I just, I retweeted that, that I heard from him. And this is what he said. He said, the ultimate test of faith is not how loudly you praise God in happy times, but how deeply you trust him in dark times. And, and he's going through dark times. There's not a darker time than when you lose a child. And we've seen that. We've experienced it here. And yet, I'm telling you, I've seen God's hand first, firsthand. I've got that front row seat. And I've seen God working. I see God working in your lives. And so that's what he's saying here uh, in these verses. I mean, these are powerful Amazing verses. And then verse 6, he says, rejoice. He uses this word rejoice, and then he says it again in verse 8, rejoice with joy. And so here's the interesting thing about the Christian life, is that you can be sad and have joy at the same time. You guys know that, and I've taught that many times. Joy is a buoyancy. The opposite of joy is not sadness, it's hopelessness. So there is a hope that we have even in the midst of sadness. There's this confident, joyful expectation about future things because, God, I know that you're going to use this powerfully. I don't know how you're going to do it. It looks so devastating, and I can't even see it right now, but I need my friends to come alongside and help me to see that. And as they support me, they help me to look ahead to what you have in store for me. That's what we're talking about here. Look to the future, to what, to what he, Jesus, will do. That's the crown, and we get this idea of the crown of life in James chapter 1, verse 12. He says there's this crown of life. That he will give to us, I think, in heaven. But I think there's a kind of a, a, a dim glimpse of that, that when we live in the difficulties of life, that we know with this confident, joyful expectation, this living hope, it's, it's that crown of life that he offers us. And I think that part of that, part of this, this uh, immediate future is this, that, and you've got you to gotta understand this, that suffering cannot rob you of joy the joy that we have in Jesus Christ, the hope that we have in him. But idolatry can. Idolatry is loving anything more than you love Jesus. So idolatry will rob you of that joy, but nothing can rob you of the joy that we have 
in Jesus. The most loving thing God can do is to destroy our idols. So in suffering, really, God uses suffering to pry our fingers from the temporal to give us the eternal. Oh, I had to do this. I'm sorry. It's, I know I do this about once a year, but it's just for those that don't know this, okay? Here it is, rope. You guys remember this? Okay, check this out. This is where we live. This is your lifespan right here. Okay, can you see it up there? You see it right here? It's just a little black. So you, got, you were born here, and you're going to die somewhere right here. And so you're really, oh, man, I'm always stressed out because I don't know what I'm going to do with my retirement. Huh? And uh, there's not much there, is there? Not much there, is there? So we put so much emphasis here. And then the Bible says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves some treasures in heaven where... Where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves cannot break into steel. Don't, in other words, don't live this part of your life for this part, but live all of your life for this. Because, because one of these days, every one of us, in fact, as I look out over this audience, probably within the next 50 years, some of you are kind of young here, so maybe you'll, some of you are close to 20. So if you get hit 70, that's not bad. You, you'll probably make it a little bit beyond that. Some of you are going to have to take better care of yourself, though, okay? Uh, <laughs> But most of us, I look at you, we're not going to be around after about 50 years, okay? Because if I'm 50 years, I'll be over 100 years old. It's not going to happen, okay? It's not going to happen. I don't even want to be around here when I'm 100. I'm feeling bad right now. I'm only in my 50s. It's like I can hardly get out of bed in the morning sometimes. I can hardly walk. It's like, it's like what's that? I'm only 50 years old. I feel like I'm about 100 right now. So the Bible says, don't get so focused on this. This is what the Bible says. This is part of our future. He says, Our light and momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You will never come back to here, but you will live forever here. And so we need to live for here. We need to live for here. Our light and momentary trials. That's what it says. It doesn't feel like light and momentary. I know it doesn't feel like it's light and momentary. I know it didn't feel like it was light and momentary. I know some of you, what you've gone through, I know, my heart breaks. It's devastating. I've gone through things, and I thought, man, am I going to ever get through this? But he's saying, light and momentary in light, of the, in light of what we have, what he has in store for us, the glories that will be revealed to us. Oh, my goodness, it's amazing. It goes on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And, oh, whoops. Okay, there you go. A couple quotes. We're almost finished. I'm going to wrap it up. We're going to have some prayer this morning. Here's another quote from, uh, in the book here. This is what uh, Keller says. Just, about, uh, just after the climax of the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, Sam Gamgee uh, discovers that his friend Gandalf was not dead as he thought, but alive. And he cries, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Pretty profound statement. This is what Keller says. The answer of Christianity to that question is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. And it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost 
You know, when you go through pain and suffering, I mean, it was minimal really compared to what I've seen people go through. And what I've gone through in the past is that when I had that uh, root canal, I was in terrible pain. And man, did it feel good when I felt good. How many of you have ever done that before? You're just like, wow, I never, I never knew that feeling good felt so good. And that's what he's saying. Having been through that pain, now when you feel good, it's just like, oh my goodness, this feels great. That's what he's going to say. Heaven, heaven will be so amazing. So amazing. That's the idea. So, so what do we do? So we look back to the cross. We look ahead to the crown, crown of life. So there's, so there's some things in this life that suffering certainly does. Suffering dissects our faith, develops our character, allows God to demonstrate his power, helps to define what's really important in life. It says here it's more precious than gold. But when we step from time into eternity, oh my goodness, everything bad is going to come untrue. We're going to go, wow, that was just like one terrible nightmare. No, 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 it was true. But I've, I came to redeem all of that. Our light and momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So here's what we've got to do. So right now we've got to keep our look to the present at what he is doing. Look to the present at what he's doing. That's where we get the verse, that verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you are filled with a joy that is inexpressible. You rejoice in a joy with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And then verse 12 talks about that the angels just long to look at this the, the greatest story ever told of God's redemption of us. Hebrews 12, it says, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. There's an interesting story in the book of Daniel, and I love this, and I think this helps us uh, in fixing our eyes on Jesus. Is the book of Daniel, how many are familiar with the story of the three Hebrew guys in the, the fiery uh, furnace? And, and some commentators would actually say that they think that Peter might be kind of alluding to that, kind of implying, because he says the fiery trials... He even says in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13, he says, don't be surprised by the fiery trials. Some of these folks were being dipped in pitch and impaled on poles to light Nero's courtyards. They were being lit on fire. So they, they, that's literally what they were going through. But some believe that he might have been referring back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were going through the fiery furnace. And you guys familiar with the, what those guys said when, when they refused to kneel down to Nebuchadnezzar's golden image and they, he confronted them and this is what these guys said. They said, uh, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, if not... It's in his hands. We're going to ask boldly, but surrender completely. He calls the shots in our lives. But if not, it doesn't matter. We're not bound down to your idol. Do you hear what they're saying here? So no matter what happens here, I'm serving God. I'm fixing my eyes on him. He's the hero of my life. I'm going to make my life about him. And nothing will sustain you through difficulty like that. So you look back to the cross, that guarantees it. You look ahead to the crown, then you look and you keep your eyes on Jesus. I mean, this isn't just uh, wishful thinking, bumper sticker theology. He's for real. He's here today through his Holy Spirit to minister to us. We're going to give you an opportunity in just a minute to come forward for prayer like what we typically do when we have the prayer stations. We'll have three prayer stations. We'll anoint you with oil. doesn't matter what you're going through, physical, emotional, spiritual, whatever it is. We want to pray with you. 
And we want to minister to you this morning. Let me finish up this last part. It is possible, I believe it is possible, to so sense his peace, his power, and his presence spiritually that it will be as if he is really there walking with you. And you won't be consumed by the difficulties of life. You won't become bitter as a result of that because his, his presence is so palpable through his Holy Spirit, giving you what otherwise you would not have. How do I know that he's walking with me? Because Jesus Christ went into the ultimate furnace for you, the only furnace that can ultimately consume you. He died on the cross for you. That's your assurance that he's walking in your personal furnace with you. How did Jesus get through his furnace? I put that on the notes there, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. How did he get through his personal furnace? For the joy set before him. Who's the joy? You and I. So when you understand that we're his joy, he becomes our joy when we're going through the furnace. It's amazing. So fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. He said, nothing. Look what I have. I've got you. And when we see that we were his joy, he becomes our joy. And that joy is that buoyancy that no matter how hard the world might push you down, it can't keep you down, just keep coming back up because there's that living hope deep within us. And so how did Jesus get through the furnace, the cross? It was because we were his joy. And and through that, he becomes our joy. And nothing defeats suffering more than when Christ is more valuable to you than all that life can give or death can take. See, we don't follow him. You've heard me say this before. We we don't follow him because he makes life better. We follow him, why? Because he's better than life. Because he's better than life. We fix our eyes on him. No trial is too great to endure if it brings you greater experience of his greatness, glory, and goodness. So here's my last, the last phrase, and this is what I would invite you to, to come up and pray. Well, I'm going to invite you, if you don't want to uh, uh, come up for prayer, to sit quietly here this morning. Just reflect on what went down this last week and reflect on where are you in your relationship with God. You know, what suffering are you struggling with? And just kind of walk through the notes here this morning. Here's our verse, Isaiah 43, 1 through 2. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the, for the promise that your words give to us this morning. And God, teach us to not only prepare for suffering, but but when we go through suffering, that we would suffer well because we, we continue to look back to what you have done for us on the cross. We look ahead to the crown of what you're doing in our lives and wanting to do and what you will do when we come before you face to face and then we look to the present, to what you are doing right now as we fix our eyes on you. So, God, I pray that you would fill us with your peace, your power, and your presence this morning as we, as we bring our needs to you in prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. As you spend a little bit of time this morning in prayer, uh, just feel free to exit, and you can do that very quietly. God bless you. Got a tough one next week. We're going to talk about hell. We're going to talk about, is it true that a loving God would send people to hell? We're going to kind of wrestle with some of those tough questions next week. God bless you.